So last week I told you I had no idea what the text was going to be this week. Uh, I still haven't decided. I'm just going to flip through. Just kidding. Really, though, Monday morning I sat down and I thought, you know what? We haven't been in one of the Gospels in a while, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to uh, get into one of the Gospels. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. Um, uh, That's the fourth book in the New Testament, the fourth Gospel, if you're looking for it. And uh, go ahead and turn over there if you've got a chance. And uh, so... First 11 verses of that, this is where Jesus performs, does his first miracle. Uh, And so before we really get into the text, let me just give you kind of a wide-angle view of things here, what we're talking about here. Uh, In the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles that Jesus performs before his resurrection, uh, but seven miracles that are part of his his earthly ministry here that are recorded. Uh, And the first one we're going to look at today is the turning the water into wine. There's also healing of the nobleman's son healing the paralyzed man beside the pool, feeding of thousands, walking on water, uh, giving sight to the blind man, and raising Lazarus from the dead. And so uh, if we're going to be looking at a a miracle, speaking of the miracles of Christ, we've got to be able to answer uh, this simple question to begin with, what is a miracle? Um, And it's a good question because today the term miracle has become very common in the way we, we use it in our vernacular, our vocabulary. Uh, Unfortunately, though, we've lost our sensitivity to what this term actually means, miracle. Uh, We've come to understand it as meaning something that is likely to happen, or likely unlikely to happen, rather. Say, uh, the weather person actually gets the weather right uh, that they're predicting here in Kansas. It's a miracle. Uh, Or maybe your your child decides one day they're going to clean their room without even being asked to clean their room. You might shout out, "It's, it's a miracle, right? It's a a shocking thing or you know as an Astros fan if they were to finally win the World Series I might say it's a miracle Uh, I know Travis wanted to say that last year and uh, that one happened it wasn't a miracle it was really cool but not a miracle right Um, and so all these things are just unlikely to occur the Astros thing more unlikely but all of them very unlikely Uh, and and what we're seeing in scripture what we got to know is that a miracle is a much bigger deal than that much bigger deal than a child unpromptedly cleaning their room or anything of that nature. And so what is it? Let me give you one good definition, and this comes from a a secular source to begin with. It says, uh, an extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or supernatural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause. Natural powers ascribed to a supernatural cause. Uh, Another definition that actually then gets to the, the source and gets the cause right, it says, Uh, such an event manifesting or considered as a work of God. Uh, It is indeed something supernatural that can only be explained by the power of God actually being accomplished. And so uh, we all have some understanding of the natural world, the way it works, uh, God's creation, whatever it is you want to call it, actually. Uh, You see, every day we wake up and we expect the sun to rise in the morning, right? It's going to show up in the east, and we just expect it's going to be there. And every evening, we watch it begin to set in the, in the west, and we don't panic as if, wow, the sun is gone forever. Now what? Uh, every night, we just watch it set, and we have our expectation the next day it's going to rise again. Uh, we expect things to follow these natural laws. In, in natural laws. When, uh, you know, if I were to pick up a book and if I were to let go of this, you would expect it to fall. It should go to the ground. That's what gravity does. Uh, likewise, helium balloon, if you let go of it, your expectation is that this is going to fly away into the sky out of sight. 
unless you're a two-year-old. If you're a two-year-old, you're going to be shocked by this news uh, and be, why? Why has this balloon left me? Uh, and begin to cry. That's just the way it works. But everyone other than the two-year-old is going to really get this. So um, really, what I'm saying is we have such a great grasp on the natural working of things in the world uh, that we just expect these things, right? When I pour a glass of milk in the morning and I walk away for a moment, I come back, I think this is still milk in the glass, right? I don't begin to do a litmus test on it or smell it to see if it's sour cream or antifreeze or anything else. I just drink the milk. Uh, so get this, uh, a miracle then is anything that is contrary to the natural working of the world that we live in, which is done by the power of the Lord God Almighty. That's a miracle. And so over the years, uh, let it be said that believing in miracles has been a struggle for people. Even those who profess Christianity have struggled to believe in, in miracles at times. In fact, uh, Thomas Jefferson, our, our third president, disbelieved in miracles outright. Um, you know, one of our founding fathers in this nation. He, he even produced his own version of the Gospels. He went through them with an actual knife-type uh, slicing device and began to cut out every place he saw something supernatural happening. Uh, and, and the end result was, you know, what is called the Jefferson Bible. Um, what he called it was the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So he had no place for miracles at all. What he, what he sought to do in removing the miracles of Christ, uh, including the resurrection of Christ, was just to take out everything supernatural and make this a book he could believe in without believing in miracles. And uh, because he liked Jesus as a moral teacher, but he just couldn't come to terms with the truth that Jesus was much more than a moral teacher. Jesus is divine. Uh, so in direct contrast to Jefferson, the, the Gospel of John is just showing this divinity of Jesus so that we might gain a better understanding of who Jesus is, namely the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, the Son of God. And so <clears throat> the question arises, how are you and I? How are we going to respond to the miracles of Jesus when we see them in the scripture revealed to us, put before our eyes like this? You see, all these events, all these events actually took place in time and space. If you were there, you could have watched it happen. It was really happening. These aren't illusions. Uh, and they all reveal something about who Jesus is. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the, the term miracle here uh, is translated from a Greek word you don't care about, but it means sign, right? an actual sign to show something. Every Sunday we put our signs out front because our signs aren't on this building and the whole point uh, is, is that you see these signs and you get an understanding of, uh, that reveals something about what this building is, about the church that actually meets inside of, here, uh, inside of here. And in a similar way, the miracles of Christ are revealing something to us about who Jesus is. They are pointing to that. And so whenever we're learning about a miracle, uh, a sign by Jesus in the scriptures, we need to be asking ourselves this question, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he doing? You know, what's the meaning of this miracle? Why has Jesus done this? All right, it's a very long introduction. I promise that doesn't reflect on the entire length of the sermon. We will get out of here at a normal time. Uh, but let's read about this very first miracle of Jesus, John chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole, uh, all first 11 verses here. <clears throat> On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. She was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? Your hour has, my hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, and, the pe- uh, and then, uh, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Holy God, open our hearts, open our minds to your wondrous word this morning. Speak to our hearts as we set apart this portion of our week to dig deep into your holy word and to worship you. Silence all thoughts that may seek to distract our minds from focus on you, Lord. And as we consider this first miracle of of Christ, will you renew our amazement at the truth that Christ has come incarnate and that we have been pardoned of our sin, not by a man who is moral, but by the very Son of God, your Son. May all that is said in accordance with your word remain this morning. While anything spoken here today that does not conform to your word falls silently to the ground. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen. It's been a while now, but uh, when Laura and I first graduated college 2002 um, that summer it became like wedding season and I think that is true in almost every generation uh, a lot of our friends were getting married and it was fun because we got to travel to these various places to their home churches and I uh, got to experience many variations of what a ceremony looks like of what a reception looks like uh, and uh, of these Christian brothers and sisters and I remember one really really well it was uh, in San Marcos Texas it was right next to the river uh, the reception was in the evening, and strung from tree to tree across the place was uh, uh, tree to tree were these Edison lights that just looked beautiful outside. Uh, the music played, people ate food, they drank wine, they shared stories about how they knew this bride and this groom, and no one was in a hurry to leave, and uh, unusually so, the weather was, was, was beautiful that night. Uh, it was just a sweet time of fellowship to, to have at this, and uh, you know, this was just this beautiful celebration between this young man and this young woman committing to this one flesh union, to this life to be lived together for the glory of God, and it was a joy to be there. Uh, I've often thought of this particular rece- reception when considering this, this miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding of this, this unnamed bride and groom here in the city of Cana. Cana, Cana. Uh, and we're never told their names, right, uh, of the bride and the groom, but we know that Jesus himself has been invited to this wedding. We don't know uh, precisely how that happens, but he's accepted the invitation, and he brings his disciples along with him, and, and they go to this wedding. And, and what strikes me as, as truly strange, you know, to be honest about this first miracle of Jesus, is that very few people ever knew it happened. You know, no... No one at the wedding really is even aware of it. Sure, we read it in the scripture, but I mean the people that were present there at the moment. Uh, I, you know, I, I think if, if this had happened at our friend's wedding that night, since we were just attending this wedding, we, we would have seen only that more wine came out. And then we would have drove away in the evening that night with no idea that a miracle had even taken place there in the place we were. 
Uh, that's the way it was with most present at this celebration. <clears throat> in many ways, John and his gospel is, is leading us on this behind-the-scenes tour of this, this miracle of this wedding celebration as it goes down. But um, you kind of have that question, you know, why, why do this amazing miracle, this amazing thing, if only a few people in the background are even going to see that it happened at all? You know, only the servants saw it, possibly his mother and his disciples, right? The very few people saw it. Uh, so let's consider this passage. We'll look a little closer and see what we can learn from it. Uh, verse 1, first of all, establishes the when and, and the where that things are going on. This happens three days after Jesus' interaction with Nathaniel. Nathaniel, he is one of the disciples now. Uh, if you remember, <clears throat> Jesus first calls Philip to follow him, and Philip does what anyone does when Jesus calls him to follow them. He follows him. And, uh, and then he goes, Philip goes, and he tells Nathaniel, listen, I found the Messiah. Come and meet him. And so uh, Nathaniel goes and he meets Jesus. And when Jesus speaks to him for the very first time, it's clear that Jesus actually already knows Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is so shocked by this that, <clears throat> you know, it, it weirds him out so much that he's, he's asking Jesus this, you know, how it is. How is it that you already know me like this? And we hear Jesus' answer there at the very end of chapter 1 of John where he says this, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <clears throat> now we're used to surveillance cameras, no big deal to us, right? That's not the case back then. So he's absolutely blown away from this. And, and Nathaniel responds like you might expect. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He identifies him right off the bat. And so Jesus says in response to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. It's not going to take long for him to see greater things than these. Now, uh, as our story here, our passage takes place, Nathaniel is with Jesus uh, and the other disciples. They are out in Cana. And, and here's the thing. Cana is actually Nathaniel's hometown. So he's going back to the town he's from in this event. Uh, and they are at this festive event, which I love because it tells us Jesus loves these festive events. He loves these celebratory aspects of life. Um, <clears throat> and further setting the scene, we are told that Jesus' mother Mary is also at the wedding. And so there's family there. Uh, her husband Joseph's not mentioned here at all. He's not mentioned in most of the scriptures. And it's widely believed the result. this is because at some point Joseph has died, leaving Mary a widow uh, of four sons and at least three daughters. Uh, as the oldest son, Jesus would have been responsible for caring for her, used to doing that. I think this in part explains to us why she so quickly turns to him now for help in this, this moment. We see it there in verse 3. Look with me. It says, <clears throat> When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. See, we don't know if the wedding party is a relative, we don't know if it's a family, we don't know what the reason is, but for whatever reason, Mary is really concerned about this, that the wine has run out and she wants to help. See, a big reason is that contrary to the way things work in our culture, the, uh, in the Jewish culture this time, it was the groom himself who was responsible for the financial aspects of the wedding. Uh, and so if you have daughters, you might request a Jewish wedding in that sense, but... <clears throat> um, so the thing is, it would have been really embarrassing for the wine to have run out. 
It would have brought shame on the name of the family, and we don't tend to think of that because we don't have a real big shame sense in our culture either, but it would have brought shame on the name of the family, and so uh, this worried her. And at first it seems then that, that Mary is just relaying this, this bad news to Jesus, right? Uh, they have no wine. You know, okay, there's no wine, got it. Uh, <clears throat> it's clear, though, that she's doing more than that. She, she's asking him to actually do something about this problem. You see, there, uh, there, there's some question as to whether she's asking him to do something supernatural about it or if she's just asking him, hey, find a, a, a way, a simple way uh, of finding a solution to this. See, in our, our home, uh, when the trash can fills up, Laura will, will make this phrase, you know, that the trash can is full. Uh, we agreed upon that phrase a long time ago. Um, and, and, and the hopes are that I solve the problem, right? The trash can's full. Uh, I would like you to solve this problem. However, as far as I know, she, she's asking, you know, Becca Mariah to actually carry the trash outside and place it into the trash bin. Uh, she has never, ever suggested uh, that we turn the trash into cupcakes uh, or anything amazing. I don't think that's what you're expecting. If it is, change your expectations quickly. Um, but I, you know, try to remember, this is the first miracle of Jesus' ministry. It's the first time, you know, we, we kind of know too much about Jesus when we come to these stories, and, and we forget that he has no track record of doing things like this yet, and so no one's really expecting it, and yet, uh, and yet at the same time, we know that Mary knows who he is. We know that Mary was, was made aware by the angel before his birth that, that her child was no ordinary child, and so she has a better idea of what's going to happen here. Uh, I believe she knew he could fix this problem in a supernatural way, and I think she was asking for that. Uh, I, I, I think this because Jesus' response to her seems keenly aware that she has asked more of him than simply running down the street with his posse and bringing back you know, more wine from the fridge or wherever. Um, and, and so we look at Jesus' response here in verse 4. <clears throat> Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Do you struggle with his phrasing there? Like I do? Um, it's even kind of hard to read it without having kind of this attitude, you know, woman. Um, it sounds incredibly rude. You know, I, I'd be shocked if anyone here sitting here today could get away with, with saying that to your mother, right? That's just not something we do. Um, you know, if, if Andrea Klein informed her son, Caden, that the lawn needed mowing, and he responded saying, Woman, what does that have to do with me? <clears throat> I'm fairly certain we would never see Caden again. <laughs> Ever. <clears throat> Gone. So it helps to realize the culture here. Uh, <clears throat> it helps to understand that aggressing his mother as woman, this was not a great statement of disrespect like it is in English. Don't hear it the way we hear that. Uh, you know, that's why a lot of Bible translations actually try to get around this. One of them renders it dear woman. Uh, another one translates it lady, uh, which I think is even worse. It sounds like a construction worker maybe hollering out, right? Um, <clears throat> if there's ever a, a Texas translation, it is certainly going to be translated as, as ma'am. Uh, ma'am, what does that have to do with me? Uh, which doesn't fully fix the statement, but certainly improves it. it. It may help then for us just to shed a little light on the situation here that uh, when we see this, this is not the only place in Scripture that, that Jesus addresses his mother using this term woman. In fact, when, when he is 
when Jesus is on the cross for your and my sin, when he is up there and he's, he's looking down to the disciple, uh, John the disciple, and he says, uh, woman, behold your son, is what he says to his mother. And, and then he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And this was a phrase that was used, not in a disrespectful way at all. And so you just got to drop that. And so while it's, it's not as abrasive as it must sound in English, there is a distinction here when he is addressing Mary, right? Uh, Jesus is beginning this earthly ministry of his, and, and while Mary may, may have relied upon Jesus as her older son to care for her, she's looking to him over and over again, he's making clear in this moment that he's actually distancing himself from her, and that sounds really harsh too, I know, uh, but he's showing her here in this moment what she needs to know, so that, you know, that his heavenly father, that his father in heaven, uh, it, it's his will that is now going to be his priority as he begins this public ministry. And this is how it must be. See, see Mary has, has served this special role in his life, but, but she has no special privilege. She must come to Jesus as, as the Christ, as the Son of God, just as everybody else must come to Jesus. And in this exchange, then, Jesus does not respond to her uh, as her son. He's responding to her as her Lord. This is the different relationship that's being established here. You can imagine there's a mix of, of sorrow and joy as the only mother on the planet who could rightly worship her son is coming to this realization here. Um, and so then when, when Jesus says in verse 4 to her, my hour has, has not yet come, that's one of those phrases that should, should get our attention. That's kind of the point of it, right? It, it leaves you asking this question, hour, what hour? What are, what are you talking about, right? What is this hour you're talking about? You see, throughout the, the gospel, this gospel of, of John, Christ's hour is spoken of again and again and again. It's, it's an I, idea here. It's referring to the completion of his earthly ministry. And so here we're seeing the beginning of it, but he's talking about the end of it. He's talking about his death on the cross, his, his paying the price for, for the sins of many. And then in verse 5, Mary says to the servants right here, uh, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Her response is a response of incredible faith at this moment. Mary has no idea how Jesus is going to fix the issue, but she tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to do because she is certain that he absolutely can solve the problem before them. It is a statement of absolute faith. And isn't that the way that we come to God in prayer? Or at least the way we should be coming to God in prayer. God, I don't know how to solve this, but I know you know how to solve this. I know you can. That's the way we go to the Lord in prayer, just like Mary comes in this moment. You know, that's why we're encouraged in, in the book, uh, the letter of 1 Peter, to cast all our anxieties on Jesus because he can handle them and because he does care for us. Both important distinctions to know. God can handle your problems and God does care. So we haven't even gotten to the miracle yet. Let's, let's look at the miracle itself. Um, <clears throat> so there's six stone water jars. Each jar holds 25 gallons. Someone do the math. We have a math major here. We have a couple. But uh, what is that? 150 gallons is what we're talking about here. Uh, that is the equivalent to, uh, you know those big plastic or metal drum like trash cans you'll see at just about every soccer field on the planet. Um, it's about the same size of three of those. So we're talking about a great quantity of, of liquid here. Um, but the question that we almost miss here is, is this, why the stone jars? Why in the world does he send them to the stone jars? I mean, why not simply just use the empty wine containers, right? 
uh, or clean buckets of some sort? Why, you know, I, I guess maybe we should even ask first, you know, why are the jars present at the wedding to begin with? Because I didn't have these jars at my wedding. Did you have any purification jars at your wedding? Uh, but they're there, and they're there for a very important purpose. They're there for this, this Jewish rites of purification. See, before eating, the, the, the people would have washed up to be made ceremonially clean, which, which was an actual physical washing, right? Everyone's hands in this party have been in this water cleaning themselves uh, to be made ceremonially clean. Now, remember, miracles reveal something to us about Jesus. And there's something being revealed about Jesus in these, these details here. Um, Jesus tells the servants to fill the purification jars with water. But remember, they've just been used for purification here, so they already had water in them. Uh, and so what he's really telling them, they're, they're filled with this dirty water at this point. What he's telling them is fill them up all the way. Add more water until they go to the very top. That's what's happening here. And they obey him, right? Mary told him to. Everyone does what Mary says, right? Uh, and, and the next thing we know, Jesus is telling them to take some out and take it to the master of the feast... This is a person who's usually a friend of, of the family who is put in charge to just make sure everything runs great. Um, and, and the master of the feast had no idea where the wine had come from, but when he tasted, he recognizes it to be of superior quality more than anything that's been served thus far at the wedding. Uh, I imagine this is probably the greatest glass of wine ever served. Um, but let me ask you this. Did you see the miracle happen? Did you, did you see it? I think we just blow right past this sometimes with really, without really taking it in because uh, we, just, we just miss some of this stuff. You see, when, when we were potty training years ago, we're not still doing it, they're there. Um, it, it was clear when our daughter had been successful because you could hear from across the room just yelling, ta-da! And you knew, okay, she has, uh, you know, you, you, yes, sweetie, you peed in the toilet. That is an amazing feat. Nice job. Um, or, or, you know, when a magician does a trick, there's, there's always some elaborate smoke or a flash or a swirling cape of something, uh, special words, whatever it is, bam, and then, and then you see this trick happens uh, if he's a good magician. Uh, and, and you might say that, that Jesus just lacked stage presence here incredibly because there's no sign of him, him doing anything at all, nothing, right? It, it, fill the jars. Now take some of that wine to the master of the feast. That's it. Jesus simply wills the water to become wine, and it does. You can, he wills it. That's, that's the action here. You know, and, in my studies, I found some people really missing the point here, and I, and I, uh, I really found myself wanting to like, yell at my books at this moment, uh, you know, reading this and saying, uh, you know, they're so concerned with whether Jesus assisted in the sin of drunkenness in this moment, you know. After all, we're told that the people had already drunk freely, right? So they've had plenty of wine, and, and then Jesus is here making new wine and more wine, better wine. And the arguments go into, you know, how much alcohol was in this wine? And, and all these details, and I'm thinking, did you, did you just read what I read? Am I missing something here? Jesus turned simple water, dirty water even, into amazing wine by the volition of his will, and you're worried that somehow he was unable to keep the people drinking this from getting drunk? Seriously? Oh, that we would know the power of our God and Savior in every detail. See, if this doesn't show us our Savior's power is absolutely without limit, that I don't know that we're going to grasp it. 
See, not only has Jesus willed the water into wine, it is, a, it is also of such quality that the master of the ceremony is absolutely shocked by it. We read it already. You can see it again there. Having tasted it, he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, that's how it is with Jesus. Everything gets better. I'm not saying your life gets easier. I'm not saying the struggles get easier. But everything gets better, you see. The longer we know Christ, the better it is to know him. The more important we come to understand it is that we do know him, that we trust him. And, and as much as a joy as, as life can be, should be, often is now, with the eternity that we look forward to is, is even better. You see, the best is, is yet to come. Verse 11 then sheds some light on the purpose of this miracle. I know that's one of our initial questions. If you look with me, it says, This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the first reason is it manifested his glory. That is, it made known his glory. Uh, the jars are a reminder of our attempts to be made clean by our own means, right? Here is a, a jar you come to and you wash in the hopes that you're going to become clean. Uh, every man and woman at that wedding would have washed in them. They um, would have, in their life, washed themselves often, and yet before God, never ultimately been made clean. Uh, the wine that Jesus is making here certainly foreshadows the only means by which we will be made pure, I hope you know the answer, the blood of Christ. Uh, the jars were filled to the brim. This is significant because uh, it leaves absolutely no room for anything else. Nothing else could be added to those jars at that point. No works, no rituals. You know, only the cup of the new covenant, only the blood of Christ, Jesus, does it all. And the last thing we're told here is that uh, the disciples believed in him. That's a weird statement, right? It seems a little odd at first. Uh, weren't the disciples already following him? Uh, they were. Uh, yes, uh, but this is only the third day. Uh, they've been following him for three days at this point. It's as though, you know, you had met Jesus this past Friday, uh, and you're kind of at this, I think this is the Messiah. I thought this was the Messiah. You know, two of the disciples had previously been following John the Baptist, only to learn that he was not the Messiah. He pointed them to the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah. And so far, they were following Jesus for their own reasons, for things they hoped Jesus to be, and, and now they're, they're seeing who Jesus really is. See, most people who took part in the festivities were completely unaware that Jesus had just made the wine they were drinking from, from the same jars that they were earlier washing their hands in. And, and yet the experience for the disciples was, was quite different. Uh, they were behind the scenes. They were made aware that Jesus is the Messiah that they had been hoping he was. They will learn this more and more and more, and, and we will see that they will struggle with doubts and have to learn it more and more and more. And more than that, they, they now know that this guy they are following is no ordinary rabbi teacher. He is God incarnate. He is able to do miracles that only God can do. So they don't believe simply because of the miracle. We know that because later, even in chapter 12, we're told that uh, there were people who saw many of the miracles of Jesus performed by him, and yet they did not believe. The, the disciples' ultimate belief here is a, is a gift of faith, but this is the means by which he reveals who he was to the disciples. And so to this wedding, 
The disciples, Andrew, John, Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip were invited. Now, though, uh, all who are disciples of Christ, you and I, all who are disciples, are invited to the wedding between the bridegroom, who is Jesus Christ, and his bride, who is the church, collectively. And so we who trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin will, will join Christ at the wedding to end all weddings. And my hope, then, is, is that we too might look in this passage, we might see who the Lord Jesus Christ really is, that we might see who he truly is, God in flesh, that our hearts would be stirred to long for the day when we will feast with our Savior forever. Put simply, this miracle here that meets the need, uh, a worldly daily need for this young couple and their wedding is this picture of who Jesus is. Even when you think about those jars, he, he takes what has attempted to, to be clean. He takes what's now dirty and fills it up completely, making it not just clean water, but making it into something new, something wonderful, the, the greatest glass of wine that anyone could have possibly had. That similar to the work that he's doing in us as his people. You know, he takes us broken and, and dirty and sinful and creates something new and wonderful from it. He creates his church, his people, for his kingdom. Let us pray.